Alrighty, so we have one more of the class that we've been doing on common misconceptions. Things that, that people are quite sure that they're quite sure about, and then we find out maybe not so, so sure. So we've looked at a whole bunch of different things um, in multiple classes within these areas. Today we want to look at one last thing, which is clearly the most clear thing in Scripture, right? This is the one. Well, if there's anything that the scriptures are ever going to be clear on, it's, it's how you can obtain salvation and avoid damnation, right? That's, I mean, this is the eternal what's going to happen to you forever. So this is going to be clear. Correct. Absolutely, absolutely. Having said that, some churches teach that heaven is for good people, hell is for bad people. Does the, does the Bible ever teach that heaven is for good people and hell is for bad people? Okay, classic Calvinism, which says, no, 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 but classic Calvinism would say what? I mean, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, my goodness. Yes, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. You don't even have to go to Calvinism for that. This is straight out of Scripture. The heat is down in this side of the building. The heat is down? Like as in, David said, the tried to turn it on, I tried to turn it on, and it still says 55 after. And our elevator's not working so great. Apparently this is a rough winter uh, for, for the church building. Suddenly. But I'm going to go back to what I was talking about. Uh, so, okay, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's, it's, not that, it's not that heaven is for good people. How would you say heaven is for what people? It's not for good people. It's for saved people. Okay, saved people, redeemed people. And hell would be for. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, logically. People who reject God. Why would they want to be in heaven if they're going to reject God? So you have to actively reject God to go to hell, right? I guess so. Okay, all right, well, let's keep working on that. Uh, other churches teach you have to be a member of a specific denomination or else you're not going to be able to make it in, right? We're not going to name names. Just because you're sitting in the back of the room doesn't mean you get to do that. All right. Some churches do say, yes, you, you have to be X. If you're not X, you're not going to make it in, right? Why? Beyond just the fact that they're a bunch of elitists and they're mean. Why would people think that? Because they want you in their, their church. Okay. Is there any non-malicious reason that they got... A misunderstanding of the Bible text that says narrow is the path, and wide is the narrow is the path of Essentially, I think what, what Eric is getting at. I'll, I'll name I'll name one church, not because I'm picking on that church, but just because they've they've fleshed this out real well. Would be like the Catholic Church, or the or, or I'll even say the Orthodox Church would sit there and say, other churches are so fundamentally wrong as to the mechanisms of your salvation. That how could you be saved if if we see that we are the church that is following the following the apostolic line from Peter? and you've broken away from that line, you're not part of the actual Honest to Goodness Capital C Church. How could you be saved? 
Now, could there be priests that say, aha, this is how I'll get people in? You know, sure. But it, there's a theological reason that they have where they're saying, I just, you have to be part of our church. Now, I think there are other ones that sit there and say, you have to be correct. It's not a mechanism thing, it's a philosophy thing. You have to be correct enough to get into heaven, and we're the only ones correct enough, right? You have to be baptized, and if you haven't been baptized here, you haven't really been baptized, therefore, how could you possibly? Now we're back to mechanism. All right, other churches have taught that you have to do certain additional things in order to be saved. What kinds of things have you heard from churches where you have to do other stuff? You have to you have to do something and then keep doing it. Your good deeds get you further okay. in heaven. I have a lady that I work with. She thinks every time she does something good for people, that gets her further up in heaven. Yep. Or there are some people, my aunt used to joke. I'll say joke. My aunt used to joke about the fact that she's got a better shot of getting into heaven because I'm a, a pastor. That, that gives her points in God's mind. And I'm like, it, it really doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way for me. It's not going to work that way tangentially for you. Getting baptized. Getting baptized. What else? Taking communion. Taking communion. Continuing to take communion. What else? Some could be speaking in tongues. Could be speaking in tongues. Yeah. It's, um, there's a specific prayer you have to jump through. Um, going back to mechanism, a priest has to say, oh, you did this right, and I declare that you are now saved. Um, a secondary experience or secondary work of grace like speaking in tongues, or there are some churches that say you can accept Christ, but then at some point subsequent to that, there has to be something where you really take that seriously. I mean, for lack of a better term, there's, there's theology that they have about that, but there's this idea of at some point you go, oh, now I'm really, really, I really, really believe this, and God does this secondary work of grace in you. But there's whatever it is that gets you saved that you have to do, and boink. You know, there's this and this that you have to keep doing. Other churches say, all you have to do is confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you're saved. What's wrong with that? Okay. This is a Bible verse, right? It is. Yeah. So, I mean, walk this road carefully when I say what's wrong with that. I think, I think it depends on what it means to be saved then. Like, I think this speaks to a conversion experience. Hmm. Which may or may not be... Let's, I, I agree, at that point you're in a relationship with the Lord, but if you toss it aside after that... <laughs> yeah, now we want... By definition in this question, we have to talk a little, bit, a little bit about can you or can't you lose your salvation, but I don't want to get lost in that. Because what I want to do is to talk about how do you move from death to life. Not, and can you move back to that again? We'll have to talk about that a little bit. But I'd rather focus on, well, how do you move from this point to this point? Where do you, where do you go with that? I don't want to get lost too much in that. Other churches then say, Christians speak often of the blood of Christ and its cleansing power. Much is believed and taught on this subject, however is such utter nonsense and so palpably false that to believe it is to lose one's salvation. Many go so far as to say, for instance, that to, to pretend at least to believe that if we confess Christ with our lips and avow that we accept him as our Savior, we're thereby saved. Clearly that's ridiculous, right? 
there's a whole verse. I, you know, I put it in a context that's a little... But what I'm saying is, is different people take this different ways. Different churches take this different ways. Even though this should be relatively straightforward. Now, Sarah was bringing up a good point. Is there a difference between being saved and a conversion experience? Part of that gets a little tricky. Even in scripture, um, the, the use of the word saved. We're told in some scriptures, you have been saved at the moment of conversion. we told in some scriptures, you are working out your salvation right now. And we're told in some scriptures, you will be saved when you stand before the judgment seat and Christ goes, this is one of ours. Right? So, you have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. You were saved back on the cross. You were saved on the cross. When Jesus paid for your sins, you were saved at that point. Some of that depends on, again, your theology. Do you say, at that moment, theologically, everybody who will ever be saved has been saved? Do you say, at that moment, everybody who might have the possibility of being saved has been handed the possibility of being saved? But even without going into theological interpretation, just the verbiage of Scripture says, you were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. So even in some of this, I'm not going to say it's nebulous, it's just... It's used in different ways. Even the same word, yeah. Kind of like the, the parable of the soul. Some of the words are that, and then that way it's all different levels. You're all sorts of different levels. And, and what's fun is, it's not just different Bible writers use this different ways. No, even like Paul will use the same phrase different ways with things. And I think, now we start getting into interpretation, but I think there's something to be said for the argument of, well, if you have been saved and you are working out your salvation, you will be saved. You know, it is a a process, but it's not a well. You move from being dead to being well, vaguely dead to being mostly alive to being alive. You know, no, 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 no. There's a light switch where you go from death to life, but then there's a process of moving you toward, for lack of a better term, final salvation. But I'm, I'm leery of saying that because it sounds like, well, I'm not quite there yet. It's like, no, no. It's more like, no, no. The, the, where this finally finds its, its completion, its fruition over here. But how do you move from death to life in that first place? Without citing scripture. Just if somebody were to talk to you at a coffee shop, and they, as people are wont to do, come up and say, you wouldn't happen to be a Christian, would you? And you say, why? I am. And they say, how exactly do I go about getting saved? Because people do that. Very soft. Actually, somebody did that to me. It's really they're like they were at a at a prayer breakfast, and afterwards, I, said, I was talking to him. He's just like, "Hey, you kept talking about being saved. What's that about?" Like, okay, <laughs> but snapshot. How would you just, without citing scripture, just how would you dis- discuss? Moving from death to life. What does salvation even mean? I know it's fraught with peril because you know we're talking about misconceptions. I'm not going to pick on any answer that you give. I just want to see roughly where we're at. Yeah. So in university, we use this four worlds little diagram mm-hmm. to kind of help visually explain how you go from death to life. But it talks about in the world <laughs> one, you're created to be one way with God, to be perfect. And then uh, we totally messed that up. It's an entered the world, and that's world two, where things are broken. And then world three, we see that Christ has come into that world and died for us. Um, so there's brokenness still in the world, 
but there is the option of salvation. And we can use that. And then in World 4, we see that like the kingdom has come, everything is better again. Things are out there supposed to be. The world has been restored because Jesus saved us. And there is this divide between World uh, 2 and World 4, where you can't get from brokenness to perfection without Jesus. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, so our job in World 3 is to go spread the news and go talk to people about what we believe and why we think it's important. Because we have this option to get to like goodness again. And then we tend to usually ask people where they see the world at. But the idea is to um, see that Jesus is the remedy for the brokenness in the world and uh, that uh, through Jesus or by uh, confessing your sins, repenting of them, and then uh, asking Jesus to do this for you, to get move you from death to life, you get in there. You're in world three. You want to go move on past that. Great. So, <laughs> confess, believe, and ask Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Anybody want to add anything to that? I would say, like, in Sunday school, we like to use the colors kind of on your... Oh, the, 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 the black, black, green, red? Yeah, the black, green, so you made me think of that, because that's how, how I always did it with in Sunday school, where, you know, we were... Jesus is white and sinless, but we're um, black with sin, and we need the red to cover it to become white and then we have gold to go to heaven cool. all right i i think all that's great and it's and that brings up the importance of you moving from death to life right just okay anybody else want to add any anything else because we're going to look at scripture next so before we do that though i just wanted to see if there's any anything that people say in general i tend to think with this one okay if you don't have a bible Grab a Bible because we're going to be we're going to be doing the rest of the thing. You guys are going to be doing all the heavy lifting because I'm old now and it's cold in here. So you, you think it's cold? Actually, I think it's even a little cold. My hands are just a little bit chilly. Wow, I know yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, I know it's man. anyway. Funky little teaching moment. Let's look at what the what the scripture actually says about this. So um, as we do this, whoever gets these first, go for it. Somebody read me Romans 10, 9 through 10. There is there in no particular order. <laughs> Romans 10, 9 through 10. Whoever gets there first. Oh, you can do the second one. Okay. Start at 8. Okay. Because it's one sentence. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your hand. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We can just end the class here then, right? Because, I mean, that's, Paul's like, here's, here's how you do it. This is, I'm even going to give a theological rationale as to why it works like this. This is it. So how are you saved here? How would you summarize? <laughs> Confessing your sin, believing that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. There you go. That was simple. We'll just move on. Oh, wait, okay. What is, while you're still in 10, what does 10 13 say? And what exactly does that mean? And if somebody wants to look up Acts 2 21, this is kind of what Peter is poking at. What does Romans 10 13 say? 10 13. Everyone, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Peter is quoting from Joel, right? In Acts 2.21, was he saying his sermon? I thought you were going oh, to ask. Okay. I have it. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? I mean, Megan kind of alluded to this when she's talking about asking him. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Because he doesn't actually say that here in these... To ask him. Okay. Ask him, you know, for forgiveness and to come to your heart. He doesn't really say that, but okay. Yeah, I mean, but I mean... It does. Oh, <laughs> no, no, you had a good stop. <laughs> no, actually, that's a, that's a, that's a that's a really good snapshot. Used to hang on to him. Yeah. Is what calling the name of something in Old Testament family mm-hmm. like the name of somebody is To to use their name as their, as as almost like a, a you know a signet kind of thing, or to to call them the. Uh, you know, I'm in the process of sinking into the depths. So I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. That sort of thing. To 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 attach yourself to Him and try to, for lack of a better term, attach Him to you. So yes, to really connect to Him, which has that implication of asking Him into your heart, of, of asking Him. Okay. So even though it doesn't, it says confess and believe. Only a couple of verses later, he says and, and call on because you're you know implicitly calling. Okay. Great. How does that relate to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? Anybody remember that? You can look it up. Or anybody happens to remember that one? Okay, we're going to need more people than just a couple to read. So, somebody, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, how does this relate to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Because I've heard people talk about this saying, no, there's absolutely nothing that you do. You have no part in this. You aren't doing anything. It's not you. You have no active part in this at all. Aren't you believing and confessing and calling? How do those relate to one another? I per- okay, let me preface this by saying, I don't actually think that there's a problem here. But I've heard people express a problem with it. So, or, or God does it all. That is the extreme form of that. You're, you're essentially along for the ride in all of this. Is that really what this is getting at? Yeah. Well, I guess you are, uh, to be saved, you are confessing, but it's God's grace that is going to save you. It's not you confessing that saves you. It's God's grace that saves you. Excellent. So the idea is, is like, are you actively involved in the process? Yes. Are you the one bringing about your salvation. Well, no. I mean, God's the one doing the heavy lifting, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like when I would do carpentry with the kids when I was younger. I might, I might say, Alex, could you hold these nails for me and hand it to me when I, when I, as I'm putting together this, this shelf? I'm pretty much putting together the shelf. You know, I was like, I don't, I don't need Alex to be holding the nails. I want him to be holding the nails. I want him to be part of this process. I designed it. I'm carrying all the lumber. I'm doing all the nailing. I just said, could you hold the nails for me? I could just as easily put them in my mouth and do it that way. No, not that. No, he's holding the. He's going to hand me. Oh my goodness. Okay, bad analogy. Forget the analogy. Point is, is God is doing the lift. God is doing the saving. It's not your works that have anything to do with your salvation, right? But it doesn't mean you're not actively involved in the process. I've always explained it 
like when I had the junior high Sunday school class, I used to tell them that when you believe, you're over the, the threshold of the door uh -huh. to heaven. But further, it's not that it's God's grace that got you there, but because you love God so much, you do your works showing Him that, and you move further from the door. Interesting. Okay. I want you to bear all this in mind as we keep going. Because he goes, okay, yeah, this all makes total sense. Let's, let's keep looking at more scriptures. Somebody read me Acts 16, 30-31. Every analogy is fraught with peril. I know this. Acts 16, 30-31. <coughs> he then brought them out, not, uh, brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. So 31. Cool. So we have a specific question. How do I get saved? With a clear answer that indicates you don't actually have to confess with your lips, right? Now it's just belief. Does he say and confess? Yeah? I think through a lot of these scriptures like this one is that... Uh, I'm sure Paul said a whole lot more than what's written. Probably, I would think. And it did a little bit more explaining. Uh, but, uh, I think you're pointing to the danger of proof texting. <laughs> right? Exactly. What's a proof text? Right. you got to look at the whole meaning of Scripture. That's why we're going to have a whole list of these. Right. But what's a, what is a proof text? Does anybody? It's like one statement out of the Bible, a lot of context. That you use to prove your point, whether your point's correct or not. You just go, yeah. The Bible clearly says there is no God. The rest of that verse says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. <laughs> Context is everything here. All right, how does this bear out John 3.16? You probably don't even have to look that one up. What is it? The least energetic expression. God loved us so much, he saved us. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, that whoever believes in him, right? Um, there's other verses there. John 6, 47, John 11, 25 to 26, John 20, 31. It's all belief. If you believe, it comes to those who believe. It's just belief. Just what does that mean if I can interject? Believe in God means something completely different than believe in Jesus. I've or, always heard Satan believes in God and Jesus too. What well, James even says, even the demons believe and tremble. So, bully for you. So, so we. The fact that he doesn't say confess or call on does that necessarily mean? Well, clearly those aren't important. Or does that suggest? Again, we're going to have to keep fleshing this out. We're trying to build an argument here. Does that mean that believing itself means more than? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you believe in Borneo? Yeah, I've seen it on the map. Sure, okay, whatever. Is that, is that the criteria for salvation? Well, that's, okay, think of it this way. It is, uh, again, every analogy fraught with peril. Do I believe in Borneo? Sure. But do I believe in Borneo? Boy, they're really going to come back. They're going to do great. I believe it. There's a difference, and it's all about the italics. But, I mean, there is. There's a difference between just intellectual assent and clearly what we're talking about here. It's more than just... Believe. Even Jesus said, you, you believe in me, like face to face. Like, he wasn't 
someone saying, do you believe I exist? Right. Like there's the common question, do you believe God exists? Okay. But that's different than believing in, I mean, your head on, grasping to you know, Well, it's like the classic old story about the guy doing the tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he walks across the tightrope. He says, do you guys believe I can do this? And everybody's like, I don't know. Walks across the tightrope, does a flip on the tightrope, comes back. They're like, that's amazing. He's like, so you believe I can do it? Yeah. And he's like, takes out a big wheelbarrow. And he's like, do you believe I can push this thing across? They're like, I guess so. And he pushes it across, comes back. And then he goes, do you believe? And they go, yeah. And he's like, do you really? Yeah. Get in the wheelbarrow. There's levels of belief. You know, do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe in me? Do you trust me? First John, one nine. Hey, can we stay in that room for just a second? Um, Am I going to bother you with this one? Yes, you are. What? You and your household. I mean, I've heard people that talk about that as long as there's one person in your house, then from this verse, you and your household are saved. Yep. So is that saying you and your household will be saved if you believe? Or is that saying you and your household believe? I've heard even more to the point. I've heard people say, "Well, clearly that has to include infants." It does. You know, well, clearly it does. I'm like, there's no infants in my household. I don't. I don't know. No infants in, in Jenny's household. I'm just one on her lap at the moment. But there's all sorts of implications there that I'd be. I'd be concerned with going down that road too far, one way or the other. And we can do. We can do a study on that verse and, and look at what's going on there, but but when people start building theology on a single verse, well, we used a word for that earlier. Oh, that's right. Uh, um, uh, it, it's, just, it's dangerous to start saying, well, clearly that means that as long as I believe, Megan and Alex are, are fine. Because there's a verse that says possibly that. Sure. But I don't think it's that simple. No, I don't think so. All right, first John 1 9. Pardon me? We can discuss that in a second or two. No, no, that's good. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so we do have to confess our sins, right? This one was actually. You know, confessing our faith, this is confessing our sins. We have to confess our sins in order to be forgiven, right? And if we don't confess our sins, we aren't forgiven, right? Well, we didn't ask to be forgiven, so how can we say we were? If you don't confess... Okay, we already had an argument earlier that on some levels, you were forgiven the moment Christ died on the cross for you. You were forgiven the moment you accept him as your Savior and he, and he washes you clean. If you are unaware of the sin and you don't ask for forgiveness, does that mean you are not forgiven? Does this mean that you have to consciously ask for forgiveness and as long as you don't consciously skip asking for forgiveness? What if you forget one? Luke 13.3 says something on this order. Mark 1.14-15 says you have to repent of... Isn't that what that says? Somebody read Mark 1.14-15. And somebody else, somebody else read 2 Corinthians 7.10. We can multitask. Somebody can be looking up one while somebody's looking at the other. Mark 1, 14 through 15, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Okay, do Mark 1, 14 through 15 first. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into 
Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. When the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay. And what does 2 Corinthians say? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation that leads to no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Okay, so if we put these two verses that aren't next to each other next to each other, clearly you have to repent of sin in order to be forgiven, and that's how you're saved, right? Isn't that just a math equation? specifically talking about that there. And here in, in Paul, Paul is is saying it's not, well, you have to repent of all of your sins in order to be saved. You were going to say something. Well, repentance leads to... Leads to salvation. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. How so? Because when you repent and you're sorry for what you've done, the behavior, you don't want to just keep saying sorry for me. And now we're again talking about the difference between just going, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me, and saying, I want to change as a human being. I want to do this differently. If you wanted to turn up the heat, I'm watching people just shiver. That's as high as it goes. That's as high as it goes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay, Romans 2, 6 through 8. What does that say? God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. That sounds... That sounds a, it sounds a little bit like salvation is dependent on stuff you do. So I kind of think, how do we reconcile that with nah, which is what Paul says in Ephesians. This is both Paul, though, right? Paul in Romans saying, yeah, huh? And Paul in Ephesians saying, nah. How's that work? He's not? He's... Here he's saying it's not your works. It's not dependent on your works. And here he's saying it is dependent on your works, isn't it? Okay, by the way, I agree with you, but we need to flesh that out a little bit. <laughs> I, agree with I agree with Randy, too. He's an elder. I trust him. <laughs> Plus, he's wearing a tie. So, um... Plus, he's from Michigan. No, no, but that's counterbalanced by the tie. Um, no, seriously, I, how, how do these work together? 
Really? Because we <laughs> Because even in verse nine of Romans two six through eight says you want to work uh, that um, to do good works that he has given you. So that's right. Good works is part of uh, your belief. Once you believe in God and are saved, you want to do good works to um, And so it's not a necessary thing. You're not going to gain salvation by it, but it's. Um, you're getting further from the door. Well, there you go. Well, because so there's a there's a causal relationship, but the question is which is the you know which is the cart which is the horse? What's what's causing what? What's the important bit here? And now we go back to what I think you were alluding to by going James. So <laughs> what is James getting at? What's the argument you're pointing to there? James two. So that well, it's 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 that your faith is evidenced by your works, right? Not that your works are the thing, the causal thing that saves you, but what makes you think you have a, a living faith if you don't have those kinds of works? And now we're back to, and what do you mean by faith? You know, what is belief? What is faith? It's more than just an intellectual assent, which is James's whole point, right? He's sitting there going, oh, you see somebody starving, you go, oh, I wish you well, go eat something, you look, you look gaunt, and you walk away, it doesn't help anybody, right? you got to do something with this. There has to be some sort of buy-in. Somebody read me Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Okay, again, pretty clear. There's some people who go, see, you have to do good works in order to be saved, right? How would you, I mean, you can't just give exactly the same answer, but you could give mostly the same answer. How would you describe what Jesus is saying here? Even that, you want to do it for the glory of God, not just the crown. But I know what you're going for with that. Yeah, temporal, not eternal. Okay, is that what Jesus actually says here, though? Lip service, not from the heart. He actually says something at the very, very end there that's that's kind of important. I never knew you. It's not just you didn't do good enough things to make it in. You didn't keep doing good things. He's like, you never had a living faith. Which suggests now, if you go back to what, yes? Effectually, there's an entire people group that could probably fit into this, so correct? They're only speaking to the Pharisees here, saying a lot of you people are just people that set up all these different things over here, but never have a heart of God. Arguably so. Though, obviously, there were some Pharisees that. Okay. Let's say, 
rather than just pick on Pharisees, let's say people that take the stereotypical Pharisaical mindset uh, on the idea of as long as I, or even you could, you don't even have to go to that. You could. Can we do a Sunday school lesson on the misconception of the word Pharisee? Then we sure we we talked about that before, but yeah. It, um, uh, I mean the Pharisee. That's a whole other. Okay. Um, but you could you could even go to people like the uh, the seven sons of Sceva, who used Christ's name as a magical invocation. Right? It's a magic trick to make the demons go away. I've seen Peter make demons go away by saying, "In the name of Jesus." And what was the demons' reaction when the when the the the, the, uh, the exorcist came and said, "In the name of Jesus," the demon looked at him and said, "Yeah, I I know Jesus. I heard Paul." I don't know you guys, and you don't know that, so you're toast. Didn't end well. And there's an extended discussion, though, where it goes on and on in that section about what you did and didn't do. You visited me, you didn't visit me, you did this, you didn't do this. But then what does Titus 3.5 say? It's like a sword drill and everybody just scrambling. It does you my heart good. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And we pulled out on this gentle state of Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, so we're saved by the righteous things we've done. We're not saved by any of the righteous things. No, we're saved and we're not saved by the righteous things. We're, we're not saved by the righteous things. How does that work exactly? Again, we can go to James 2.24. It's what? Okay. Or, what? Now, what does James 2.24 say? Okay. I what is that verse actually? A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Okay, so what does Titus 3.5 say? You're not saved by righteous things that you do. What does James 2.24 say? What does it say again? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So how do those go together? By faith alone. Yes. Well, but James is saying you can see someone's by righteous by what they do. It doesn't mean they're righteous by what they do. Because of what they did. Exactly. I love Martin Luther. Great respect for Martin Luther. But he wanted to cut James out of the Bible because I think, at his core, he had a core misunderstanding of what James was saying. Martin Luther thought James was saying you've got to do stuff to be saved. And he's like, oh, that's exactly against Paul. Martin Luther was exactly alongside Paul. They were saying exactly the same thing. Saying, guys, you have to have genuine faith that is genuinely lived out. Paul's saying, now bear in mind, you're saved by God's grace, not by what you do, but then that should be borne out by what you do. And James going, right, if you don't do something with it, what kind of a faith did you have? They're both saying exactly the same thing. I love putting Ephesians and James next to each other. Ephesians 2 James 2. They're wonderful bookends to remind you of these things. But again, we come back to not faith alone. It's, it's, it's a faith, but it's a living faith. It's a faith that's actually lived out. Somebody read me Acts 2, 38. <clears throat> You'll know it when you hear it. Yeah, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Okay, so clearly echoing Mark 16, 15 through 16, if somebody could go there while I'm talking, Mark 16, 15 through 16, meaning you have to be baptized in order to be saved, right? Doesn't Peter clearly say, repent and be baptized? Baptism is an outward expression of Okay, that's an outward expression of an inward truth being very Augustinian, so that's good. Except I don't like him for this episode. Everybody's got their foibles. I don't like him because he said we only have nine commandments, so everybody's got the thing that they get frustrated with. What does Mark 16, 15 through 16 say? He said to them, Go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. There you go. Whoever does not believe, Clearly, you have to be baptized, yes? What does Jesus say? He says you have to be baptized. What? Believe and be baptized in order to be saved, yes? And if you don't believe and are baptized, you're not saved, yes? Read that again. Read the whole thing again. I'm being facetious. He said to them, go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized or has will be been. saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So what's the key point there? It's the belief. But it's a belief that then is borne out by <coughs> baptism. And yet, he doesn't include that in the, in, in the fail point there. It, it, it's not saying... Whoever isn't baptized is not going to be saved. So what did baptism mean? I mean, Peter talks about being saved through baptism. Acts 2-4 talks about baptism. Romans 6-3-5 through talks about baptism. What What is baptism at its core? What? Okay, yes. Uh, the, the word itself literally means to, to be submerged or to be... No, I, what I want is what biblically... Is baptism about? What does Paul even say in Romans, if you want to go to it, as to what's going on in baptism? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, okay, what were you saying? You're dying. You're going under the water and coming up something else. It's Again, it was originally a term you know, when they plunged cloth under and dyed it and brought it up a new color. So it's this idea of you are being immersed into something and coming up. It's like the grave. You're going down into the grave and coming up something new. So, why does he make that point here? What is he trying to get at here when he says, believe and be baptized? And whoever doesn't believe, is, what's the point that he's getting at? It's not the water. What's the point that he's getting at? What's the deal with baptism that makes it so important here? And it's, the ex, it's the change, and it's the expression, which is what Wendy was getting at too. The expression of what? And now we're back to Nikki's Augustinian statement. It's it, it's a public outward demonstration of something inward. Yeah. There's more than one level of baptism. Right? There's the water baptism. There's the heart baptism. Are you, uh, 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 baptism in the spirit. There's various things that the scripture talks about with that, with the circumcision of the heart, etc. What are you, at your core, expressing in the baptism? Because Peter then goes, oh, well, let's go dunk you. So I can at least say, at least on some level, he's talking about baptism. Yes. 
take yourself off the throne. Now we're back to kind of what you were talking about with some of those the, the, three world, the four worlds. It's a death to self. What were you going to say? This is a little too My issue with the baptism is only a public expression idea. It's like was Philly, 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 like, he said, why should that be bad? Then just go do it then. Because the whole point was, like, for a community to see, wouldn't he go back to some community? Wouldn't he do it in front of somebody? Like, wouldn't it? Well, except, um, it, it is a public expression, but the, main, the bigger thing is it's an outward expression. Um, it, is it a community thing? Sure. But the, but the main thing is, is it's... It's trying to be an outward expression, a, a, a tangible thing. I don't care if you want to think of it as kinesic, you know, from a from a teaching standpoint. That you want to do this on an intellectual level, on a kinesthetic level, on a different thing. Just like you are saying, my faith has feet, right? My faith changes me. This is something I don't just go, huh, okay. I want to be something changed by God. Right, and that's what I was going to say because you you want to do it because you have been changed. So you want to do it, just like you want to do good works out of the thankfulness that you've been saved. Exactly. So it's not it's not just a like it's not just a symbolic outward public show. I mean, it right. has in to me it has very much a spiritual significance. But the outward layer, the outward expression layer, also the public. It's like the covenant in front of uh, when you get married in front of the church. You know, it's it's you're. You're not only doing this covenant before God; you're doing it before everything else. Right, and I, so I want to be careful. I want to be careful when we say you know, only a public thing. We're going to take communion today, and it could be tempting for some people to go, "Oh, it's only remembrance. That means it doesn't mean much." Um, that's kind of potent. I mean, it, it's remember this is this is an expression of of originally it's a derivation off the seder that they did every year to remember what happened. You know, when when they're brought out of Egypt, that's that remembrance is a huge thing. So the, the public action, the community action is huge, but even just the outward action, the I'm, I'm, I'm expressing not just that I believe this, but I'm expressing that this is uh, full body faith, that this is something where I am connecting myself with God and I'm being changed by God. John 5, 24. This has been up there for a while, so surely somebody, somebody has already prepared themselves to read this because they said, oh, I know that's where we're going next. I know. That was me being all facetious again. John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Okay. So how much of God's word do you need to believe? Do you need to understand? You have to believe in, 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 in God's word, right? Yeah, here's it. Okay, so you have to hear it. If you don't hear God's word and believe, do you have to believe all of it? I don't. I think that you have to believe all of it, but you don't have to understand all of it. Belief and understanding are two, or sometimes two different things. Fair enough. Let's cut out understand and say belief. There, you have to believe in all of it. If there's any part of the Bible you don't believe in, you're not saved. Yes, that's what he's getting at there. Okay, again, proof texting. What is he getting at here, then? I mean, he, when he says God's word, or when he says my word, he's not necessarily talking about the entirety of the Bible, though it's applicable to that, but that's not what he's getting at here. Exactly. He could be referring to the paragraph he just 
could be referring to just this chunk. I'm not saying yes, but... But contextually, you very well could be. What's the point that he's getting at here? If it's not, you have to believe all of it. You have to understand it completely. You have to get... What's the point that he's getting at here? Well, he has the verse right before that. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So then I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word believes him. So what? So he's, I think he's saying in context, you have to believe I died for you and came to life. That way you are conquering death too. So he's not dead yet. But well, that's true. You're right. I'm sorry. It isn't, John. You're right. But, but arguably you could, you could say this echoes at least what Paul is getting at in Romans of believing on him. You, you believe that I'm actually coming from God. Believe that I'm who I, believe that I'm Lord. Believe this kind of stuff. You have to, you have to actually trust what God is saying to some degree or another. Is it all of God's word? Is it what I just got finished saying? Is it believe in Jesus and what he's saying about himself? The core of it is, you, you actually have to believe that God is, is speaking truth here. You actually have to put your faith in what God is saying here. Not necessarily that you have to believe the entirety of God's word. Again, heard people say that, and I really don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Psalm 1 is all is basically saying how important it is to, to love God's commands, to follow God's word, to understand this and try to live this out. It's more of an expression of, you know, live like this. John 6, 50 through 58. Maybe somebody can summarize that or read it quickly. I want to make sure that we can get through all of these. 50 through 58. automatically assume he's talking about communion. He, there is no contextual focus here on communion. There is contextual focus here on manna in the desert and all that kind of stuff that God took care of you then. This is something deeper and richer now. Could, could have something to do with communion? We don't know. Point is, is what exactly is he saying? Because he says, if you don't do this right, you have no life in you. Is he saying you have to take communion? Is he saying you have to... Uh, I mean, this is the same gospel that starts off with he's the word made flesh. Is he saying you have to drink in my word? He just got finished talking about trusting in him, his, his word. I mean, if you don't do it right, you have no life in you. So what is it that he's wanting you to do? Consume his flesh and blood. Thank you. 
Yes. I am suggesting that it is or is not. Okay. <laughs> and I say that because contextually, it's easy to go, no, it just happens to have some bleed over into the same kind of word pictures, but it has nothing to do with communion here. Other churches go, what are you, crazy? He's specifically talking about communion here. He's talking about eat me and drink me. Of course he's talking about communion. But he hasn't changed the Seder yet to communion. <laughs> We yeah. did that. But yeah, but yeah. Yeah, so, so is he talking about communion here? Some churches would say, yeah, and if you don't keep doing it, if you don't keep taking communion, you can't remain in him. I was just listening to the radio this week, earlier this week, and, and somebody said, you need Christ in your life. And this is how you get Christ in your life. Are you listening to the Catholic Church? I'm not going to say where I'm listening. It doesn't matter. point is, is that there's an argument in some churches that you have to keep taking communion or he doesn't come into your life. This So clearly John is talking about communion. If so, then what does that suggest about remaining in him? There are various verses that say, well, and if you don't keep doing remaining in him, then maybe you don't save your salvation. I don't want to get lost in the can you or can you not lose your salvation. My point here is, how much stuff do you have to keep doing in order to keep remaining in him? If you don't remain in him good enough, you cease to be a Christian, right? Well, there's no reason to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and hundred neighbors yourself. You have to do all that. That's, that's, that's what you've got to do. I wholeheartedly agree. What if you don't do that with all your mind? You do it with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, but not with all your mind. Are you no longer remaining in him? So it doesn't matter, and you might as well keep on sinning. No. You have to say, God forbid, right? Isn't that the Paul's argument? Oh, God forbid. No. So you go, so you do have to do all of it. Yes. And if you don't do all of it, well, then you stink. Does it mean you didn't remain in him? You repent of it. Isn't that, I love First John, because in the same book, John says, by the way, nobody who's a Christian is going to keep on blithely sinning. And when you as Christians sin... He is faithful and does to forgive you. You go, wait a minute, I thought I wasn't going to... Wait, what? Again, if you take these two verses in First John out of the context, you could prove wildly different theologies. But when you put them together, you go, yeah, don't be doing this. So I'm not going to do it? Okay, you're totally going to do it, you bonehead. And when you do, he's faithful and just to forgive you. So don't do that. Matthew 7. It's bonehead, it's implied in the Greek. Um, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. See, I'm glad you got to read this because you're the one that referenced that earlier. There are churches that sit there and say, if you don't do things well enough, if you aren't on the narrow gate enough, and by narrow gate I mean what we believe, then you cannot possibly enter. Is that the way that works? I mean, Ephesians 5, 1 through 5 says, you know, if you do this, and if you do this, if you're this kind of a person, if you're involved in this kind of sexual immorality, you're not, you're not getting that inheritance, right? So how does that work? Is, aren't they saying you have to do stuff rightly in order to get into heaven? Hint, sort of. 
But how does that flash out? I mean, when Paul specifically says, people who are engaged in these kind of things, they, 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 they don't have this kind of inheritance from God. <coughs> yeah, he's saying, sort of. But how does that actually work out with everything else we've been talking about? Apparently there's a narrow gate, and apparently there's a much easier one that doesn't lead you to happy places. Well, he's saying that, uh, uh, yes, there's a way of salvation, and you have to follow that, and yes, there's not so much strict rules, but Jesus is the only way. There's all other kinds of ways you can go all over the place that don't lead the point. And that's the easy, those are easy. Yeah. But to follow Jesus and, and be again, it's not that it's hard, but that it's... Well, to me, it's, it's physics, because I'm like, if I wanted to get something out of this drawer, right, it's not that complicated. I open the drawer and pull it out. What if I said, okay, I think that's elitist. I should be able to get something out of this drawer some other way other than opening the drawer. Maybe if I open this door. Maybe if I come over here and do this. You know, you know it's physics. I mean, this is the drawer, man. Just go to this drawer. There's a gazillion other ways that I could open things in this cabinet. None of them get me into this drawer, though. Right? There's a, there's a bunch of other paths. There's a relatively narrow gate. It's just one that's very well marked, and God goes, I'm going to do everything I can to get you here. But more to the point about Ephesians, is he saying, if you are a Christian, and then you go do some of these naughty things, clearly, I'm going to dump you out of heaven. Or is this another one of those cart horses things? Where he's going, guys, like in First John, if you are blithely, unrepentantly happy doing sinful things, i got to wonder, now I'm going to be all Jamesian, about whether or not you have a healthy faith. Is this something that's really real to you? And now we come back to, again, confess with your lips, what? That you actually believe this stuff. You know, get baptized. What do you mean? I mean, demonstrate that you want to be dead to what you were, dead to death, and alive to life. Even though we're hitting all these different things that are coming at it from different angles, it keeps coming back to some of these same issues. Um, Mark 10, 17 through 20. You know what? I'm starting to run out of time here. Um, he's talking about the rich young ruler who was told specifically you have to go sell all your stuff. Is he saying that rich people can't be saved? Is he saying if you sell stuff, you get to go to heaven? What's the point that he's getting at with that? I know, thank you. What's the point that he's getting at there with the rich young ruler? His heart is in his riches, and it's not rich. Yeah. Yeah, you lack poverty. That's what you lack. You need to get some poverty in your life. And you're holding on to the wrong stuff. Do you want to put some feet to your faith? Do you want a living faith? Do you want to take this seriously? Then you need to live this out. You need to show that you, it's more than just an intellectual assent. Uh, John 3.3. 3, what's John 3.3 3 say? It's a very familiar one. So what does born again mean? The guy he says it to goes, I have no idea what you mean by that. What does born again mean? Pardon me? Don't you know these things? Well, it's just saying the sign of baptism, you're dying to your self. Sure, we can link it with that. And just say it's a new life. You've got it. You've been born. You've been born from your mom. Now you need to be born of the Lord. You need to be born from the Holy Spirit. You need to be have a spiritual birth. You need to have new life. This isn't just an improvement of your old one. This is something completely new. Um, tell you what, let's just, 
uh, Hebrews 7.25 talks about drawing near to, to the Lord. John 6.37 means that you need to come to Jesus. So if Christians don't have a close relationship with God, then they must not be Christians. Anybody ever have like a wilderness period in your life where you get kind of a dry spell in your quiet times? Does that mean you've lost your salvation? I hope not, yeah. I mean, Revelation 3.20, classic salvation verse. That has absolutely nothing to do with salvation, right? Behold, you know, I, I, I bang at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. He's not talking to people saying, if you just let me into your heart, you non-Christians. He's saying, you Christians, let me in. For I'm, I, So, is he saying, clearly, you have to draw close, and if you don't draw close to God, you are not saved? Then what's the point here? Okay, you should be trying as hard as you can. Is there another way to take I know, we started late, so we're doing Sure. But in all these things, you need to you need to you need to be in relationship with God, right? This is more than just intellectual assent. This is relationship. Draw close to it. If I if I believe in Wendy and I and I confess that I'm married to her, and at some point, it's only really a healthy relationship if I go and I kind of want to know her well. You know, I kind of kind of want to spend some time with her. I kind is it that if there goes a day where I don't spend time with her, we're not we're not married anymore? No. But if I let that go for an extended period of time, you got to look at me and go, at the very least, man, what kind of marriage are you working on here, man? And if you never have any interest to be part of her, I don't know that you've got much of a marriage there at all. Maybe you never did. Not a bad analogy to what we're going on with this. Uh, John 14, 6, uh, there's just so many different verses that we're pointing to. Maybe a couple of this. Um, says, it's only, you know, do it this way. Uh, John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, John 3, 18, John 3, 36, 1 John 4, 12, all say it's only through Christ that you're saved. Only by calling on the name of Jesus that you're saved. If you don't consciously accept Christ as your Savior, you stand in condemnation already. Which goes back to your initial comment that I asked about. It's like, do you have to actively reject Christ in order to not be saved? John 3, 18 says, no, you have to actively accept Christ in order to be saved. You don't have to actively reject him in order to to not be saved. You stand dead already. This is where you this is the default. And and, and we talked about this the other day, but you, oh no, see now I messed myself up. Um, you could look back to Romans where it says that there are some people that have a law to themselves. You know, they 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 oh, I can't even read my own thingy because it got it got it got chopped off. I, I will I will try it one more time. Reboot. No. I will try to go nice and slow and see if PowerPoint can get it. Come on. There we go. Romans 2, 12 through 15. Somebody read me that. Classic, what about the pygmies argument? Romans 2, 12 through 15. Pygmyize me. All who sin, apart from the law, will also perish Show that the requirements of law are written in our hearts, 
The consciousness is also hearing witness of their thoughts, now accusing, now so isn't that suggesting that people might actually be able to be saved without ever knowing Jesus? Is that the argument Paul's making? Cricket noises. Ish, at least. At the very least, he's like, well, if you can be saved by righteousness, if you can be saved by the law, then you don't necessarily need to know the law, as long as you're actually following the law, right? Now, Put that in a larger context of Paul going, by the way, ain't none of us saved by the law. You know? so, but, but in there, he's like, you, know, you don't have to be Jewish. You don't even have to have ever read the Bible. If you are following the law, then if you're saved by following the law, it doesn't matter whether you've heard the law or not. Of course, if you look at that very end, technically, he's arguing not that they can be saved, but that they can be equally judged. Because the law is written on everybody's hearts similarly. He's like, you could be Defended or condemned by following or not following the law. His point is saying, we're all, you can't say, well, you're not, you're not Jewish, so you can't be saved. Or you're Jewish, so you're automatically saved. But it comes down to, instead of getting lost all the inconsistencies, what consistency, what commonality or commonalities do you see in all these? Where are we going with this? What, what does it mean? How do you move from death to life? What does that require? It does, doesn't it? That's core to this. Believing. Believing, but not just intellectual assent. Believing like you're willing to get into the wheelbarrow. Believing like, I believe in Borneo. I think they can do it. You live like somebody who actually believes this. You live this out. Whether you're talking about James, you're talking about Ephesians, you're talking about John. Over and over we have this idea of to move from death to life, you could get lost in all these things and go, well, these are all inconsistent. They're all saying different things. But at the core, whether it's talking about being baptized, it's talking about uh, living out the works that all this is reflecting what is going on in your relationship with God. What is going on in your heart? Do you actually believe? Do you actually confess with your lips? Do you live out in your actions? Do you live out in how you comport yourself with other people? Do you live out in wanting to draw close to the Lord? Do, did this change you? Are you moving toward the Lord? Did you move from something who's dead to something who's alive? If so, then you're attached to the vine. You remain in him. You're, you were saved. You are in the process of working out your salvation. And when you get to the judgment seat, we have absolute affirmation and confirmation that you will receive the inheritance. You will receive your salvation. So I get, technically, that this is coming out from all sorts of different angles. And yet it's coming out that same basic argument. It's not that some say you have to be baptized and some say you don't. You have to look at the whole context of Scripture to see the commonalities, right? Is it important to be baptized? Sure. Jesus says specifically, yeah. But the key thing, why? The why is what it suggests, what it presents. We need to end. So any any last comments on this? Knock yourself out. Since we were emailing back and forth. He's, yeah. I, for years I was thinking, okay, 
guess that criteria for God to be able to come to your sins. And I, I think ultimately it's the relationship <coughs> uniting. That's what a relationship is, is two separate things becoming one. And because you've become one with him, then his, what he's done on the cross can cover your debt. Just like in a marriage, one spouse is dead belongs to the other. Yeah. You take that family name. You, he purchases his adoption for you, and you come into his family. Um, the etymology of the English word atonement is at one meant. I mean, the, everything is you come together and you are in relationship. You have moved into my family. You, why is it that my children will receive an inheritance when I die and Olivia won't? What? I know. What? No, I'll give her something. She's but, your child. Seriously? Just kidding. Okay, uh, somebody else won't. Eric won't. Uh, but the point is, is not that I like them better or they're, they stand next to me, or, but they are in that relationship with me. They, they've moved into my family. This is my family. Um, and that's what's happening here, is ultimately that God says, um, in, in some ways maybe even I'll, I'll tweak it and say, not that God says, and now I can give you this, but moreover, and now you can get this. You know, you are, it's not that I was inhibited from giving it to you, it's that you inhibited yourself from being able to you set yourself outside of that relationship. You started outside of that relationship. I'm bringing you into that relationship. That may be the best way to try to express it to somebody when it comes down to this. It's not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It's that redeemed people, changed people, people in relationship with God, adopted people, people whose sins have been washed clean, people who are righteous before God because he declared them righteous, are in relationship with him and are saved. Which means that if we actually want to be those people, we probably ought to live like that because we are changed, because we have been brought into that relationship. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the eerie consistency when we actually put it all next to each other. Um, but I, I pray that you help us not just to be able to express that to people, but to be able to live that out, to want to come close to you, to want to minister to the people around us, to want to believe right and to live right and to be right with you because you have made us right with you. We give you all the glory because all of it is yours, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.